This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. The Guardian. Hi, I'm Patrick Greenfield. I'm Phoebe Weston. We're biodiversity and environment reporters at The Guardian. And we're back for another Age of Extinction takeover. In three months' time, the city of Glasgow will host COP26 at the crucial UN Climate Summit. And Glasgow's announced plans to plant 18 million trees. That's equal to 10 trees for every resident, as the city prepares to host the conference later this year. Tree planting is nothing new. But over the last couple of years, the movement has gained steam. And at the same time, a debate has raged about how to do it correctly and how much it can help us counteract global heating. That's why in these episodes, we're taking you through the science and controversy behind the decisions we're making and how they might shape our future environment. In an era of division over the climate breakdown and what we should do about it, tree planting seems to bring everyone together. Even the climate change denying US President Donald Trump could get behind it when he was in office. We're doing something I love doing, planting trees. I've always loved it. We're also uh, honoring our country's heritage of conservation, including through the support of One Trillion Trees, and that's the One Trillion Tree Initiative. One Trillion Trees, a powerful idea that says many more trees in the ground could help sequester enormous amounts of carbon dioxide to help us mitigate global heating. The Time magazine owner and billionaire Mark Benioff convinced the Trump administration to take on the initiative he launched at the World Economic Forum at the beginning of 2020. As Mark sums it up, no one is anti-tree. Other people championing the idea include primatologist Jane Goodall and Colombian President Ivan Duque. A very big deal, we'll be planting over a period of time one trillion trees. That's a lot of trees, Kevin. How do we do that? Huh? Do you have any ideas? That's a good question. But President Trump was not quite right. The initiative is about planting, restoring and protecting forests. A crucial nuance, not just getting as many saplings in the ground as possible. When Trump and others say one trillion trees, they're drawing inspiration from the same place. Research from a lab run by a young academic called Thomas Crowther. I would have never wanted the idea to come out that a trillion trees can be restored by planting a trillion trees. Not only is that 
physically impossible, but it literally wouldn't be the healthiest way of restoring ecosystems. I'm Tom Crowther, and I'm an ecologist studying global ecosystem ecology at ETH Zurich. Tom uses machine learning and satellite imagery to study the Earth's soils, fungi, and carbon cycle. His first big result came in 2015, where he and a team of scientists estimated how many trees there are on Earth. Three trillion. Far more than previously thought. But we also knew that that was about half of what existed before human civilization, and that we're still losing about 10 billion trees every single year. So we're constantly losing these vital ecosystems that are important to all life on Earth. A few years later, Tom and a team of researchers then extended the models to see where there was space for more trees on Earth. A postdoc at Tom's lab, Jean-Francois Bastien, came up with the idea and led the study. And that revealed that there's room for over a trillion new trees in all of the areas that are not currently intensively used for agriculture or urban land. And so that really set in place the scale of the restoration potential in forests. It was a really exciting result. When the study was published, the author said reforestation was the most effective solution to climate change to date. Two-thirds of all emissions from human activities that remain in the atmosphere today could be removed, according to the research. But both these claims attracted intense criticism from peers. I have to say 2019 was both a very exciting year for our research, but it was also one of the hardest years of my life. And I, I still feel that anxiety of 2019 because... You know, as with any major advance in science, you expect a lot of pushback. I remember the day this paper came out and I was a science correspondent at The Independent and it popped into my inbox and then all of this criticism popped into my inbox from other scientists, which was sent via the Science Media Centre. And I read through the criticisms and they were so convincing. It's the first time I've decided not to publish a paper based on the weight of that criticism. And then I woke up the next morning to find out that every single other news organisation had published it. Phoebe's story highlights a lot about the split reactions to this paper. I reached out to an environment journalist who was also covering the research at the time. And he says he found the scientific criticism a mix of both substantial concerns and less substantial dislike of a new kid on the block. Tom is a new generation. I mean, also, he's using very different techniques. He is picking up on the potential of satellite imagery to tell us things that we didn't know before. My name is Fred Pierce. I'm a UK-based science and environment journalist. I also write books, including my latest one, a trillion trees. One of the claims in the paper that Fred and many others questioned was where it said we could put new forests. The map included ecosystems that traditionally have very few trees, like African savannas. And Fred knows how serious planting trees in the wrong location can be. He's visited a desert in Israel where trees are doing the opposite of what you'd expect them to do. A couple of hours out of Tel Aviv, you go up towards the Hebron Hills and right up against the border with the West Bank is a very large area of forests that have been planted in the last 50 years, roughly. And I've talked to scientists there who've been measuring uh, you know, how much carbon these forests are taking up, these pine trees that they've been planting, and what the effect is on the ecosystem. And, the, and it turns out that those trees are still having an overall warming of the planet. 
The trees are warming the planet because of the change in the surface's albedo. That's the word for how much the Earth reflects solar energy back into space. And a bright sandy desert reflects more solar energy than dark tree canopy. And if they survive till about 2040, they will maybe get into the cooling category because they will be holding enough carbon to offset the loss of reflectivity of the desert surface. But probably because of climate change, those trees will be dead by then. I saw areas um, in the Yatir forest where um, most of the trees were dead because of a drought about 10 years ago. Most people are expecting a big decline in rainfall in the eastern Mediterranean region. The trees only got going initially because they were irrigated, but uh, the irrigation has long since ceased and will be difficult to restore even if you wanted to do it. Critics, including Fred, say Tom's maps show we can reforest areas where few trees would naturally occur. Tom argues this is a misunderstanding of what they were showing. The right way to interpret this information is not about where trees can be planted or can't. This model was simply a model to show where trees might naturally exist. And in many, many grasslands, there is a natural low level of tree cover. Anything up to 10% tree cover can be a natural, healthy grassland. And that could be one tree in your field or one tree in a larger in a larger area. And that might be a natural state of things. And so when our model showed that trees can potentially exist in those regions, it could be perceived the wrong way to suggest that you should plant trees there. And that is absolutely not the case. About a year after the paper came out, the team did release corrections and clarifications on other aspects of the paper. They said they did not mean to present new forests as more important than cutting greenhouse gas emissions, but that they knew of no other carbon capture solution as large as reforestation. They also made it clear that more trees would sequester less than half the amount of carbon from the air that the paper initially suggested. There is plenty of legitimate criticism about this paper. But one thing that is noticeable is that it did focus minds on how nature can help us fight climate change. Very few, if any other scientists, can draw a direct line from their research to the front lawn of the White House. Yes, it was grasped by some people as this terrible opportunity to greenwash, essentially to plant a load of trees and then they don't need to conserve existing forests or cut emissions, which is absolutely the wrong way to be looking at this and the wrong lens to be seeing trees through. But it was also taken up by many, 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 many people on the other side of that argument who are interested in revitalizing biodiversity for the local biodiversity and well-being of human populations around the world, as well as the fight against climate change. Tom is continuing to build on his big data ecology research. He is also co-chair of the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration, an international project to rewild and revitalize an area the size of China. And he's launching an online platform called Restore, which is like a Google Maps of biodiversity. It will combine the latest metrics on the natural world with a global map of conservation projects, including reforestation schemes. If it's successful, Restore could help promote the kind of ecological restoration that will help us mitigate climate change and avoid mistakes like monoculture tree plantations. I spoke to another ecologist who says big data platforms like Restore could be incredibly useful. It's a little shocking, but we don't actually have a good global perspective of where restoration is occurring. I'm Dr. Susan Cook-Patton. I'm a senior forest restoration scientist at the Nature Conservancy. Susan's also on the scientific advisory board of Restore. She's been crunching some numbers with her own team on the natural carbon capture of trees. 
We developed maps of the potential carbon accumulation from natural forest tree growth across the globe. Says for any place where you might choose to put back forest, this is how much carbon you can expect from letting the forest naturally regrow. Okay, how much in terms of the big picture, the big number that listeners need to know about, how much carbon can reforesting on the scale you estimate actually suck up? So I really, (laughs) I think I'm going to put my foot down. I don't like to give out the big number because that says like, okay, some hypothetical scenario where we massively deploy trees across the landscape, which would be, you know, great for many reasons, but also hard to do. Costs a lot of money, potentially have conflicts with how people are using the land. I really like to emphasize that it's about picking where reforestation works for you, and then let's get you good estimates of the climate mitigation potential. So you can figure out, is this a good climate solution for my purpose, or do I want to focus on the other tools for tackling climate change? Obviously, tree planting and forest restoration, these are not things that we've invented in the last few years. There have been initiatives going on for a very long time. What do we know about the success rate of projects historically? Right. Yes. So I was lucky enough to work on a project with Meredith Martin, who's at North Carolina State, and her colleagues at Yale, where they did a survey of all the tropical tree planting organizations that they could find, went through all of their publicly available information. It was something like 174 organizations in some. And what they found was only a very small fraction actually report monitoring at all. And an even smaller fraction reported the results of that monitoring and said how their trees were surviving. And what that says to me is that we're missing opportunities to learn how to do better. If we're not sharing our successes and failures, then how does each subsequent project know what to do, what to not do to make sure that they're really optimizing all those efforts to get trees back into the ground? What are the stats on tracking at the moment in terms of these schemes? So it was 18% of tropical tree planting organizations that report monitoring, and only 5% of those actually reported survival. 5%. Yeah. (sighs) We could do better. (laughs) Yeah, do better than 5%. What does that mean? I mean, as a researcher in your gut, what does that mean about the kind of the way tree planting is presented by corporations and organizations? Is the attitude up to now been that you just kind of plant trees and forget about them? You know, yes. So there is a lot of emphasis on getting the tree in the ground in the first place. And that's definitely important. And that's the really fun part, right? Like, wow, I put this tree in the ground. But it requires care to make sure that those trees live long enough until what we call they're free to grow. You know, they've gotten big enough that they look like they'll be able to make it. And then, yes, monitoring takes time, takes money, and often projects just don't have those resources to do the follow-up monitoring. On the excitement of tree planting, what do you think the human psychology is of it? I mean, thinking about the debate between allowing forests to regenerate naturally and actually humans going and intervening in landscapes, doing nothing in the landscape to help prevent or mitigate the climate crisis is not really an attractive proposition for, well, people who want to help, right? Why are some kind of so fixated on actually doing something, planting that tree? Yes, I think you're right. It, it It is a human psychology thing where we just love to feel like we are doing something, especially now when we see so many problems around us and just doing something is so satisfying. And tree planting in particular, I mean, the idea that you can put a tree in the ground that your children and grandchildren will get to climb in when they're older is just so fulfilling. 
But let me let me tell you a story about uh, planting a tree in my own backyard where I got a red oak seedling sapling from a local community group that was trying to improve watersheds. And I brought my daughter, who was five at the time, out into the backyard. And we're like, we're going to plant a tree. So we dug a hole, put the tree in the ground. And then just as I finished tamping down the soil, I looked up and like a meter away, there was a much larger red oak tree that had grown on its own. And it was just a reminder to me that like, oh, we think that we need to help. But sometimes all we need to do is get out of the way and let nature grow on its own. And that's what nature does well. How is that red oak now? And, well, <laughs> uh, the one that I planted is about half the size of the one that is uh, growing happily on its own. And I've left them both there. They're too close to each other that eventually they'll probably get in each other's way. So I'll have to pick a winner at some point. But right now it's just sort of a little competition to see who eventually wins. I think it's going to be the one that planted itself. Got a head start. Patrick, new forests can clearly help with climate change, but it's not simple. And whether we should plant trees or let them regrow naturally is a key question. And that is what I'm going to tackle in the next episode. How we get trees into the ground, including those 18 million that Glasgow has planned. You've been listening to the Age of Extinction takeover of Science Weekly. I'm Patrick Greenfield. I'm Phoebe Weston, and we're biodiversity and environment reporters for The Guardian. This episode was produced by Tiffany Cassidy, the executive producers were Max Sanderson and Nicole Jackson, and the commissioning editor for Age of Extinction is Max Bonato. The Age of Extinction project is supported by the Band Foundation, the Wiss Foundation and the Oak Foundation. If you want to find out more about this content, head over to the podcast page at theguardian.com. We love receiving your emails. If you have any thoughts, feedback or ideas for future episodes, drop us a line. The email is scienceweekly at theguardian.com. See you on Thursday. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.